Chapter One of White Rose of Weary Leaf. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. White Rose of Weary Leaf by Violet Hunt. Part One White Rose in Red Garden is not so white. Snowdrops that plead for pardon and pine for fright. Because the hard east blows over their maiden rose, Grow not as this face grows from pale to bright. Behind the veil forbidden, shut up from sight, Love, is there sorrow hidden, is there delight? Is joy thy dower or grief, white rose of weary leaf, Late rose whose life is brief, whose loves are light? A. C. Swinburne Chapter One. Three or four early impressions, the fewer the more indelible, some things seen and chance words heard, influence character to a degree out of all proportion to their importance. Picturesque, trivial, grotesque, or poignant, as they may be, they are imprinted on a fresh white, unscored surface, and some of the twists and deviations of the line that stands for character are determined. Amy Stevens was a common person's child, a unit of no particular ethical value, and she lived with her humble parents in a mouse-ridden villa in a country town. Next to her own people, the mice were the most important things in the house. She dared not object to these familiar fauna, for her busy mother would have laughed at her. So she fell in with the circumstances of her environment, and took an intelligent interest in the colours of the mice that early in the summer mornings ran in a procession across the flap of the sheet in front of her chin. She saw them large as racehorses, dun and ginger-coloured, cheerful beasts, who coursed freely past, taking no notice of the goggle eyes of Amy, fixed on them, as she lay in bed, afraid to be afraid. An only child, she was of necessity unattended, and was often sent out to play in the field behind the house by herself. When Amy was about five years old, she saw a plainly dressed woman standing stock still, with her hand on the gate, that she herself must pass through to get home. As she approached, the woman said politely, "'Little girl, will you kindly take my arm off the gate for me?' The poor creature was paralyzed. The most appalling ghost story that ever was told could never equal for Amy the horror of that incident which nobody ever explained to her. The bland white face, the inert arm, the woman who was used to being partly dead, she never knew what it all meant till the surgeon at the Kimberley Field Hospital informed her. Her home was next door to a prison, and sometimes the little Amy could get no sleep for the dreadful noise of hammering within those walls. The cause of the noise was explained to the child. There was no notion of sparing Amy's nerves. She hadn't got any business to have any. Every question duly met with an explanation when her elders knew one and had time to offer it. There was a figure nailed to a cross hanging on the wall in her aunt's room. "'Who is that poor man?' asked Amy. "'The Saviour,' her aunt replied, and Amy accepted that title for the interesting piece of sculpture and example of man's cruelty to man. Amy's father was an engineer, a little wiry active fellow who was never at home. 
He wore himself out and died young, but her mother lived to be old and a charge on Amy. Still, she had been a fairly decent mother to me, Amy always said, in the days before she learned to speak good English, which she picked up as she picked up most other things. I don't pretend to be a lady, she would say, but I have been with people, don't you know? Amy had been, not to school, but in a school, a different thing. She had assisted in a dressmaker's shop and in a typewriting establishment. She had been secretary to an author and companion to an idle lady abroad. She had been on the stage. She had been to Russia with the famous Dr. M. as his amanuensis, and been sent home in a British steamer when trouble arose. She has seen a battlefield in South Africa, and the results of it in hospital afterwards. She was a constitutionally rolling stone. She had a good figure and a bad complexion. She was pale and sometimes yellow. That was because she had roughed it too much, for in some of her more easy situations Amy flowered and bloomed like a little swart out-of-doors London shrub, suddenly transported into the amenities of a greenhouse. A season of comparative indigence and the obligation of looking after herself would thrust her back into comparative plainness. But her figure, of which she was reasonably vain, she meant never to neglect or let go. She did not do it on purpose, but her clothes generally clung to her in the Greek fashion, and she was fond of carrying her purse round her neck, slung on a heavy gold chain, so it traced clearly the groove of the breast. It was as if Artemis, strong in her austerity, should care to define the figure. She wore cheap shoes with high heels, which she managed admirably. Her sweet, pert, pathetic mouth suggested alternately frankness and reserve, accordingly as she chose to pinch and prim it, or wear it ingenuously open, snatching the full effect of short upper lip. Her mouth was her best feature. It spoke of race, though where did Amy get race? Her prevailing expression was one of quiet expectancy, that of the thoroughly skilled workman who knows that, armed with the power of his hand and eye, he will not be permitted to go to the wall. Amy knew she was efficient. On her way back from Russia, she had accidentally stumbled into an excellent berth. She did not expect to keep it, in view of her tendency to rove, but then she counted on getting something else as good. She was always careful not to attach herself, and thus avoided a considerable amount of heartbreak. An English gentleman of good family, Mr. Jeremy Marion Dand, of Swarland, travelling with his wife and daughter, had come across her in an hotel on the Riviera. She had been staying there for three months with an old lady as her companion, an old lady who could neither give nor refuse her a character for she had died quite suddenly in the hotel at Costabel. She appeared to have no relations, so it fell to Amy to bury her in the English cemetery, after a short but tough wrestle with local authority and red tape. Mrs. Dand heard the story, circulated as it was all over the big hotel. She was a sentimentalist, and she found Amy most quaint. Dulce, her twelve-year-old daughter, found Amy great fun. Mr. Dan, the father, found her quite uninteresting, but engaged her to please his womankind. He was a large lazy man, supposed to be clever, known to be cool, savage, and cross-grained. 
Amy was to go back with these people and be companion to Dolce in their English home, Swarland Hall, situated in one of the loveliest tracts of country in the north of England. They all returned via Paris, and stopped a couple of nights at the Hotel Rex. The day before that, fixed for their crossing to England, Amy took her charge for a walk in the Tuileries Gardens. Dolce, a sophisticated girl of twelve, did not in the least care for the bird-fancier, and his waiting mani of sparrows, or to go into the Louvre for a last look at the victory. Neither did Amy. Art was nothing to her. She saw more beauty in a new blouse, which she pronounced blows, or a smart pair of shoes, than in all the loosely draped victories in the world. The two sat down on a bench in the sun, next to a young student with a flowing tie, and he turned round and recognized Dulce's new governess. "'Why, Amy!' he exclaimed, with a foreign accent. "'Why, Mark!' she replied, holding out her hand cordially. "'Here we are again. You look splendid. What are you doing with yourself just now?' "'Shall I use the words of Mazzini? Je conspire toujours.' "'Oh, Mark, you silly!' exclaimed Amy. "'What on earth do you get by it? Do be more business-like. And are you in funds? Because I am.' "'Ma chère, do you think I would borrow of a woman, although I am a Pole?' He referred to some private joke of their own, for Amy laughed. "'You are too generous, Amy, but be at ease. I am all right for the present. Can you come and dine with me to-morrow, Place Blanche?' "'Sorry, Mark, can't,' answered the girl. "'I am in a situation, and what's more, I am off to England to-morrow.' "'She is looking after me,' volunteered the child. "'Yes, that's so,' answered Amy serenely. Miss Dulce Dand. Her mother's a famous novelist. Sells eight thousand copies. She's been translated into Russian, I believe. I'm her maid, more or less, and Dulce here's companion. I am to get forty pounds a year, and my washing. That is why I can lend you some, if you like. Save it, said the student. Me? Never. If you won't have it, I shall put it on my back. We shall see that Amy wants for nothing till she dies said the child sententiously i am simply devoted to her she has vowed never to leave me i shan't ever marry i am going to be ugly mum says and i need never think of men for they'll never think of me all the same she never thinks of anything else but love and marriage said amy with a shrug it isn't healthy at her age don't you love the trees the flowers the blue skies overhead mademoiselle asked the student, bending towards the dark-skinned, strong-featured schoolgirl. "'Don't you ever run and play and rejoice in your youth and your liberty?' "'No,' said the child, looking sly. "'I can't say I care for flowers or trees and things, but I don't mind what they call running away, and leaving Amy and you alone together a bit, if you like.' "'You needn't do anything of the kind,' said Amy. "'I have nothing to say to my friend Mark that a child might not hear, and you are a terribly advanced child.' and far more likely to corrupt me than I you, and besides we must go home. Make an appointment with him, then, pleaded Dulce. Yes, we will, to meet next time I am thrown on the world again, which won't be long, in spite of what the child says, Mark. That was how we met before, without a sou, either of us, waifs, strays, ne'er-do-wills, odd-come sorts. I believe, Amy, that you enjoy it, the pale student said. You are, like me, homeless, unattached, uncounted. 
ah is there one soul in this great city nay in any city to whom our death would import picture it sometimes amy i feel so light so useless so little anchored in this round ball called the world that we squeeze and fight on that i wonder i don't float up up off it and away but where to my god amy do you never i always remind myself that there's such a thing as a force of gravity said amy come dulce write to me dear mark swarland hall near oldford yorkshire prosper and don't be throwing more bombs than you can help adieu End of chapter 1. Recorded by Lisa Reichert.